Hello, welcome to another episode of the Great American Novel Podcast. I'm Kirk Kernut. And I'm Scott Yarbrough. And the book we're discussing today is Edith Wharton's 1920 classic, The Age of Innocence. So Scott, give us a little brief overview about what this novel is about. In a time of tradition, in a place of privilege, Newland Archer lived his life by the rules of his society. I want everybody to know. What? That we're engaged. (laughs) Until he met a woman who lived by her own rules. I think they're all a little angry with me for setting up for myself. I hear she means to get a divorce. She made an awful marriage, but that doesn't make her an outcast. This novel's a Pulitzer Prize winner for Books came out in 1920, awarded the award in 1921, winning somewhat controversially over Sinclair Lewis's novel, Main Street. It's about a young man raised in the upper crust of New York society named Newland Archer, who has to decide between following all the rules and doing what he's been raised to do and staying with the woman that he becomes engaged to, who's officially approved by all society and by his mother, and by all the, the trappings and, and unseen rules and regulations and boundaries of their wealth and position in New York society of that time in the 1870s, 1880s, and choose between her and this woman who is fleeing from a horrible marriage that was also previously established for her much in the way that his marriage has been established and who's really the woman who speaks to his heart and soul, but he would have to transgress against all these rules and regulations and boundaries and cultural modes of operation for him to be happy with her and making that choice. It's a complicated book. It's a uh, fascinating book to look at in terms of the original publication date. It was written very quickly in a seven-month period in 1919 right after the end of the Great War. And Edith Wharton had spent the war abroad doing relief work, very important relief work, and had done a, made a massive major contribution to taking care of refugees in the European uh, countries there, France in particular. Uh, when it was published, I mean, it was a serialized first in the Pictorial Review, and it sold uh, upwards of 150,000 copies of the magazine. And when it was published in book form, it became the biggest hit of Wharton's career, selling, uh, uh, again, about 115, 120,000 copies right away. It was a book that was written for money because the war had severely depleted Wharton's finances, uh, and she had not had a hit novel in a few years. It was also a book that was designed to get her back in contact with American audiences. There was some sort of feeling that she had maybe drifted a little too far into European interests. She was actually writing a book in 1919, a war book called A Son at the Front, which would not be published for a few years later on. And her editor at Pictorial Review, whose last name was Jewett, although he wasn't 
related to Sarah Orne, I don't believe, told her there's no hunger for a, um, a book about the war right now. So she switched gears. And I think the main question that we want to start with is there's a palpable sense of nostalgia about the Age of Innocence, a book published in 1920 that is about life in New York in the 1870s, an era, we would call it the Gilded Age today, that the Great War has pretty much wiped off the face of the map. So the question is, Scott, what do you think the function of nostalgia is in this book? You know, the first thing I think you would have to say is that at some level, the title is pretty ironic. Yes. And it's pointing out how if you were taken up by society and cloistered by great society and a part of that upper tier elite, as she was as a, as a young woman, then, uh, you know, born Edith Jones, and although we may think of Smiths and Joneses as being the names for common folk in the United States, the term keeping up the Joneses is associated with her extended family, which is of the supreme financial elite of New York and going, going back and had been for quite some time. So this is the time of the robber barons where all these Rockefellers and people like this are making money hand over fist and becoming incredibly wealthy in the wake of the Civil War. And so if you're born to that society, in some ways, it was a very cush, very privileged, very easy life, so long as you played by all the rules. And our, our chief chroniclers of what it means to play by these rules are, from United States perspective, the writers who are capturing in novels of manners, that's the term we should probably define here in a minute, what it means to be part of the society are Henry James and Edith Wharton. And so both of them tackle these issues. And again, as long as you're playing by all the rules and all you raise to them and you don't buck against the traces, as they would say, then everything can be pretty nice. But underneath all those silk and soft cloth and flowers is iron and steel. Right. And it can bite at you and restrain you in, in different ways, especially if you're a woman and the double standards all apply. This chronicled very well in this novel, as well as in the great Henry James short story, Daisy Miller. One of the things that intrigues me about Edith Wharton, maybe more so than Henry James, just because I associate him with more of a uh, intellectual aesthetic tradition, but uh, with Wharton, her Fiction really dramatizes how in this period of time, there was a fascination with the wealthy. This is the era that Ward McAllister dubbed, you know, was led by the 400, sort of the shishiest families in New York and Newport. And there was a, you know, there was a mass interest in the comings and goings of the wealthy. I think one of the obstacles that a lot of my students have to any Edith Wharton or the Age of Innocence really is, is in that sort of mystification of the wealthy. I think we've probably been trained a little too much in the post-dynasty age, if I can call it that. Sure. Or even I was thinking, you'll see a lot of comparisons to Age of Innocence with uh, contemporary TV shows like Billions or... Uh, or succession, which really are about new money. Right. But there's something about novels or fiction about the wealthy that we as middle class readers really want to see them taken down a notch. And I'm, right. I'm wondering if you could speak to that desire just a little bit. 
Now we're talking old money here. And that's one of the distinctions that I think we need to make. Although Julius Buford, who's the financier in this novel is clearly new money. Right. But uh, in America, as Scott Fitzgerald once observed, you go back three generations and all money is new money. Right. Although there are certain enclaves of the South, Charleston and Savannah among them that would push you back a few more generations or right. old Virginia. You know, what's funny about all that, Kirk, I don't know if you've paid much attention to the news over the weekend or past several weeks. I feel like every time I pick up my phone, I see Prince, quote unquote, Harry <laughs> on there. So at the same time that we don't like royalty and we are against having a reified, absolutely required social class that we have to look up to and worship in the way that people raised in monarchies are supposed to worship the royals, we do it continuously and we seem to do it through reality show culture. So I think I would agree with you that we love to see them taken down a bit. And that is as a first generation middle class person or second generation. And my father and my mother both certainly come from very blue collar origins before kind of clawing their way up into the middle class. I definitely have a resentment for the very wealthy. And of course, what I like about Wharton is that although she's talking about the very wealthy, she isn't really portraying them in flattering terms. But there is this other side of us where people are absolutely fascinated by it. How many fictional characters and how many novels are written about wealthy people? Right. The great underrepresented class in American fiction is the middle class. Yeah. We tend to write about the very poor and the very wealthy, but the great preponderance of people in our country who by world standards do live in the middle class are much more ignored. When we talk about the middle class, the tendency is to satirize. Right. Satirize as an anti-intellectual kind of dull. That's really the main gist of Lewis's Main Street. Right. Just to reference that controversy a bit, I think one way of understanding why the Pulitzer Committee felt uh, Main Street was un-American was that it was it was kind of punching down on American values of pride in country and God-fearingness. And, but Age of Innocence is, in a sense, punching up, and we tend right. to give more deference to punching up. You can't read the opening chapter of the Age of Innocence and not think this is a satire. It's right. very cutting comedy. Main Street is more farcical, I would say, but uh, Age of Innocence is is a is a lot uh, sharper and almost forensic in the way that it slices up the philistinism of the rich. I was just going to mention that you and I are of an age where we probably maybe grew up with the last sort of. Uh, remnants of that regard for old money. I mean, I remember Spy Magazine that would make fun of some of the uh, debutantes of New York of the late 80s that sort of degenerated into party girls and the coke scene and all of that. But when we talk about this sort of dissection of the mores and the means and the codes, one of the great lines of this novel says that all of these people live to a set of hieroglyphics yes, and that the signs sort of vanish and disappear and they're trying to decode them all the time. And that's what we mean by a novel of manners. A novel of manners is simply a novel that is about etiquette. It's about the way that we are shaped by social norms. And I think one of the 
pitfalls that we have as middle-class readers is we want to self-congratulate ourselves that that world of the wealthy and inherited wealth is inherently corrupt and that people who are born wealthy, the, you know, it's the, again, the old Fitzgerald cliche, rich people really are different from you right. and me. We want to believe that they're amoral in ways that our good old stable middle-class morality is not. But we could just as easily do novels and manners about the middle class. And I was reminded this morning, just to give one example that I think is pertinent to the way that the Age of Innocence uses the society to sort of shut individuals out is, again, you and I were probably the last generation of people coming out of high schools in the 80s where young women who got pregnant in high school uh, disappeared, Mm. right? They were shunted off to somewhere for a semester, and then they returned. And, you know, people knew what happened. Uh, but if it was talked about, it was done so very cruelly. Right. And there was a lot of stigma to that. And we may have lost a little of the culture of shame in our country in the past 30 years, but that's really what a lot of these novels of manners are about. It's one of the ways in which this book is an Ameri- very American in its theme because it's a conflict between the individual and the community. Right. But I think we have to be honest in our interest in the wealthy, we want to see them taken down a notch, but we also envy that life of luxury. Absolutely. That's so much a part of all these things. And I think you're right about this idea of the culture of shame being some part of it. I mean, it's there. If you think about a book we've discussed earlier, it hasn't been a subject of a podcast we've talked about a lot. It's in The Scarlet Letter. Mm -hmm. It is, of course, it, it shows up Throughout the Henry James uh, oeuvre, we'll, we'll get back to him in just a second. And of course, it, it shows up here. And I think when we think of the stories that do focus on the middle class and the two writers, I think most of us would identify as breaking the seal on that would be Cheever and all his New Yorker stories of the 50s and John Updike and all his, I call them his adultery lit mm-hmm. novels, the uh, Rabbit Run and so on. One of the things that happens is people are able to shrug off to shame and and kind of become somewhere between self-interested, self-enlightened, and self-indulgent yeah. over the course of those stories. Now, one of the things that's fascinating to us about Edith Fortin is she's writing about what she knows. When you think of some of the older women characters who are very cruel distillers of the rules and the manners and the tastes. Her biographers often say that's based on her mother and that right. that overall Wharton's ongoing body of work is one long, elaborate act of revenge against her mother. I don't think that's particularly <laughs> true. Mother had one of the great all-time villainous names, too, Lucretia. Lucretia, exactly. If you name a kid Lucretia, you can't be mad when they grow to fit yeah. right? There, she's almost the Cruella de Vil of American literature in uh, some it, ways. Exactly. But, you know, from a very early age... She knows she she's raised some of these families that they write about where she's spending all this time in Europe and in France, you know, going on the grand tour every year, having houses in the south of France as well as the United States and summer houses in Massachusetts. She falls in love with a man and is not allowed to marry him because the parents disapprove. And then she ends up marrying a man who ends up being eventually an alcoholic, abusive, a philanderer, bipolar. bipolar and 
according to the rules and the custom of her upbringing, she's supposed to stay trapped in that unhappy marriage forever. And much like Ellen and Linska in this novel, she rebels against that and fights free of it. One of the things we've talked about before is, Kirk, I'm a little disheartened and not particularly interested in all the spouse lit, which comes out books about famous artists, spouses. Yes. For instance, I don't want to read a book about Teddy Wharton. <laughs> and what I wish people would do is they'd write more books about someone like Edith Wharton, who takes all that money and energy. And during World War One, does all this amazing humanitarian work and relief work, as you said. And she, she knows early on she wants to be a writer. And in fact, she reaches out a lot in a kind of letter writing campaign to Henry James. So he finally relents and meets her around 1900, Mm -hmm. which is kind of when his star is starting to dip before it comes back in 1908, 1909, when he re-releases all those books. Right. And they become pretty good friends. And I think her earliest best books, such as the house of mirth show some Jamesian influence. Yeah. I think one of the unfortunate things is for uh, after her death for many years, Wharton was sort of stereotyped as the female Henry James. And some of the differences that make her distinct were maybe overlooked. To go back to the way that she was raised, I think that one of the things to think about Edith Wharton was she was essentially raised to be male in this novel. Right. A decorative, uh, non-intellectual, kind of an adoring white. Right. Part of the scenery, in a sense. And she was a creative person. Now, her mother, again, Lucretia, discouraged her writing, uh, disparaged it. And just, you know, one of the classic moments in the biography is, and this gives some insight, and I think into the marital discontent that these novels explore, is when. Edith Jones was getting ready to marry Teddy Wharton. She'd had no sex education whatsoever. She's so she asked her mother, you know, what to expect on wedding night. And her mother basically said to her very cruelly, don't be so stupid. You know, you should know this. Don't make me say it. And I think there's little wonder why uh, so many people in this generation, men and women alike, found themselves in wholly unhappy marriages because they were being bonded together without any right. sort of counseling or advice. Well, it's often with, with no relationship at all. Yeah, I mean, it's very exactly. much like the old European aristocratic arranged marriage. I, I've told my students, the only time it's ever paid to be poor in world history is if you're a young woman who wanted to marry whoever you wanted to marry. Because if you're very poor, your parents didn't necessarily care who you married. But if you had any kind of wealth or status at all, it was all about building family wealth and status and not about yeah. being allowed. And that so and so part of their even as they wanted to see themselves as different in European aristocracy and rising above it, at the same time, they mimicked every one of its worst habits. Exactly. This marriage that's that takes place in the novel is essentially a marriage of two families. It's meant to right. uh, perpetuate the uh, social status system. And when you when you mention the unhappiness, of course, what sets all the the whole plot in action is the return from Europe of of May's cousin Elton, Ellen Walensky, who's married a Polish count. Right. I think one of the very effective techniques of this novel is Warden only hints at certain conflicts. 
So Olinsky has done horrible things to his wife. We don't really know what they are. We can assume that he's been unfaithful. Right. He's probably flaunted it. You know, he's he may have even beaten her at times. We just don't know. No. But Olinsky is portrayed very much as a kind of proto-Tom Buchanan and the great Gatsby. Yes. Uh, and that's another reason we love to hate old money wealth, too. We like to think they're just brutal and animalistic as any, uh, any working class uh, person might be portrayed. Or that people who are of lower social classes simply do not register right, right. to them. So as, as Buchanan says in that novel, you know, I suppose the latest thing is to let Mr. Nobody from nowhere make love to his wife. Exactly. Now, if he'd been a Vanderbilt, that's a totally different story. Yeah. Yeah. Again, another family that rises to prominence during the Gilded Age. So we started talking earlier about her interactions with James. I think she has a great value that James doesn't. So when James reworks all his novels, they become even more Jamesian, as we've joked before, mm -hmm. right? More dense, more comp, you know, that it's all linguistics. It's all about the aesthetic. But why use a five-word phrase when a 19-word phrase will do? Whereas what's fascinating about Wharton is that she evolves with the time. If you place The House of Mirth from 1904, 1905, next to this novel from 15 years later, this novel reads like it is a contemporary of Scott Fitzgerald's or someone. It's not surprising to read this novel and think in five years we'll see the sun also rises being published. It, it, whereas you can't read, you can't read the house of mirth and think this is part of the ongoing American aesthetic. And I think one of the reasons I think this novel is valuable is it does show her ability to somehow merge that earlier Jamesian style with the changing, evolving American speech patterns in a way that say the house of mirth fails to, and certainly Sinclair Lewis fails to do so. Yeah. I, I think again, it's important to note that this was a this was a book meant designed to connect her back to a mass audience. And whereas James, when he entered his sort of psychological realism phase, you know, I think for many readers just gets lost in the myriad trains of thought of the minds that he's exploring. Wharton's eye is is on the outer world and, and the individual's relationship, the negotiation of those social expectations. Uh, when you talk about her hearkening back to an earlier Henry James, though, the novel that comes to mind of James's that I think this book is most alike is maybe Daisy Miller, which is the most accessible of Henry James, I, I would say. Age of Innocence is in part a tribute to Henry James. You know, Newland Archer's name is kind of a conjoined uh, amalgam. Amalgam, yeah, that's what I was looking for. A tribute to two characters, Christopher Newman and then uh, Isabel Archer. Uh, Isabel Archer, the uh, portrait of a lady. But she uses a technique that James, in his earliest phase, was was really one of the leading proponents of, which is uh, what we'd call free and direct discourse. Right. And this is a type of approach where, in third person, you focalize uh, the perspective through a character who sees the world in a very set way, and the the plot uh, friction arises from the fact that we know that this character's way of the viewing the world is very faulty and that we're right. not getting the information we need to judge it, uh, to judge the behavior of other people appropriately. 
So one of the things we need to talk about is our is our sort of main male character, which is, which is Newland Archer. I, I'm wondering, just out of curiosity, what do you think of him as a as a hero? That's one of my favorite character, favorite things to ask my students. I sign this novel all the time. And let me uh, back up for one second, and then it'll carry us into that. When we think of Portrait of a Lady, I do think this novel is very much a, I would almost call it a rebuke to Portrait of a Lady, because mm-hmm. there we have a, a man who's never been married and never seriously involved in a long-term romantic relationship who is telling the story of a woman who is so controlled by her manners and by society that she lets herself stay trapped in that marriage. And there's a tendency of readers to want to judge her. So in this novel, we have a woman who refuses to stay trapped in a marriage. And in addition to that, the later day character, Tom Buchanan, being like the Count Alinska, Gilbert Osmond is very close to Tom Alinska, although he's he never really perpetuates any, or Tom Alinska, that was a nice <laughs> amalgam again, to the Count Alinska. He never perhaps perpetuates the overt crimes, but just in terms of the coldness and the way he treats his wife, it's it's horrifying in that novel. And then we see what society does and how they treat her when she does dare to rebel against it. And then in Newland Archer, you have a person who, although he's male and the double standards are all in place, is he going to be like Isabel Archer and stay rooted by custom and by his notions of duty and the way he's been bred and raised to believe he's supposed to behave? Or So I asked my students, is he being a decent, good person by honoring his troth and his marriage vows and never going to Ellen? Or is he being, is he just being a coward? Is he scared to to again, buck against the harness to fight back. And students are always incredibly divided. And I think what's really interesting, one of the great accomplishments of this novel is that you can kind of land every time you read it in a different place of Newland. She makes this, this connection very clear, by the way, when at one point Newland, who's got friends, is, who is interested in the arts, who has friends among artists and writers. And if you're looking for your biographical connection to Wharton. It is very evenly divided between much of her personalities in Newland, just as much of her cir- circumstances seem to be in, uh, with Ellen. Mm-hmm. And so as his friends teasing him and all this, he says, you're in a pitiful little minority. You've got no center, no competition, no audience. You're like the pictures on the walls of deserted house, the portrait of a gentleman. You're going to amount to anything, all of you, till you roll up your sleeves and get right down to the muck that or immigrate. God, if I could immigrate. Well, we have then, you know, a purposeful reference to James's novel. So right. not only do we have Isabel Archer versus Newland Archer, but we also have even the reference there. And I, you know, I think ultimately what I think of him is I simultaneously admire him for sacrificing his own happiness to do what he thinks is right by his family. But I also rebuke him for not having the nerve earlier in the novel before he follows through with his wedding because he has a moment of choice, right? I can either Mm -hmm. give in to my feelings towards Ellen, it's very risky, or I can push ahead with the marriage to May. 
And so he so scares what he might do. He asks that that marriage be rushed. And May actually understands this. I mean, one of the genius things about the novel is it portrays her kind of a beautiful dolt all the way through until the end when you recognize that she has very savvily been aware of everything about him. Right. Newland's been playing checkers and she's been playing chess. Right, right. She's she's three-dimensional chess. May, you know, May actually tells him, if there's another woman involved, the reason that you're rushing this engagement through, tell me now and we'll wait this, make a choice now. You know, she understands men. Yes. Uh, she maybe does not have the language to put their sexual opportunism in, but she doesn't want to end up trapped in a loveless marriage either. Now, the irony at the end is we, we see that all along this society has, in a sense, been conspiring on May's behalf to remind him of duty. And there is that marvelous kind of penultimate uh, chapter where the, the uh, archers host a going away party for Ellen. Right. And uh, Newland realizes he is like a prisoner in an armed yes. camp. Because all of these people have been brought together as a way to remind him of his duty as a husband. And as it turns out, the great revelation at the end of that chapter is that May is pregnant. And that responsibility traps him when everything else couldn't ultimately trap him. And what's interesting is, of course, every one of them presumes he's been having an affair because that's what... Men do. That's what Buford has done. He's kept all these yep. mistresses on the side. He works very hard to make Ellen Alinska his newest mistress. And, yes. and you're not sure if it weren't for the influence of Newland, whether he'd be successful or not, just because she's so friendless and without anyone to have her back at all. She's utterly isolated and alone. And we also have this other minor character, Lawrence Lefferts, yes. who's it's sort I mean, he's the first guy to jump in there and sort of lift up his nose at other people's indiscretions, but it's implied that he's had several of his own. So it, you know, this is a, this novel is a great critique of the male presumption of sexual liberalism or licentiousness. Uh, And that's what I think you can go out and find any number of discussions of it in the last four years that link it to the Me Too movement. Because there is, I mean, there, you know, those moments where Buford sort of shows up with, uh, you know, with flowers or sort of shows up at the country house unannounced, you do get the sense that, oh my God, here's a married man that is, that is knocking on this available woman's door who's all the world assumes that she's sexually available. Right. Because she ran off with the secretary and in the, in the novel, it becomes it's very clear that she ran off secretary because it was any port in a storm and she was absolutely frightened to death and desperate. And there's pretty good indications that perhaps they weren't even involved that secretary was simply a way to get away. That's another great moment where we aren't given the facts and it falls upon us as readers to sort of judge. And if we think that, I mean, there's the insinuation that she was caught living with the secretary uh, at one point and we have to ask ourselves, are we judging, are we assuming about Ellen the way that 
you know, we make moral assumptions about the behavior of right. other people. And the idea that for her to get a divorce from him is far more heinous than for a woman to stay with a husband who is a serial philanderer and at least emotionally abusive and a, yeah. if not, you know, physically abusive, which he may also be. One of the things that fascinates me is why did she choose, if we think how James writes the story about Isabel Archer, you have a, a male author writing a, a woman character, and it's probably hard to find writers who are more sympathetic to women in 19th century lit. Uh, I might suggest Hawthorne, but then James is. But why does she choose to put to write it from a male perspective? Now, you could argue she's had a similar character with Lily Bart in The House of Mirth coming from 15, 16 years earlier. But why do you think, Kurt, she chooses to have her main protagonist here who occupies 90% of the narrative space in terms of limited omniscience be a man? I think ultimately her interest is in a certain type of person that in this novel is more likely to, that the drama of obligation is sharper if it's done to a man. That is, uh, for a man to sort of sacrifice the passion. I can't be your wife, Newland. Is it your idea I should live with you as your mistress? You gave me my first glimpse of a real life. And then you asked me to carry on with a false one. No one can endure that. I'm enduring it. Later on, Newland refers to it as the flower of life. And, you know, it's just, it's really not something you see many men do, to be perfectly honest. I mean, we probably all know too many stories of men that have just jumped out of marriages and into other relationships, broken right. off, abandoned their kids, uh, all of these types of things to pursue passion. Right. And I think, you know, Newland Archer is very representative of a type of Jamesian character too. the uh, sort of the figure that is two steps removed from life. Mm. I mean, at one point, Archer is described as a kind of dilettante. He studies this society. You know, he sort of, he plays by the rules, but he's also not a, particularly a connoisseur. He has a lot of interest, but he's not an artist himself. And the idea is of... Uh, these types of characters in Henry James stories like the the beast in the jungle or the right. jolly corner of men who have been a little intellectually cold and who have, who have stayed away from uh, emotional attachment. Right. And so I think she's exploring that type of character and quite honestly, maybe in terms of the female passion, it's been done, as you say, 19th century is replete with, Anna Karenina's right. and, uh, and Madame, Madame Bovary, Bovary. Yeah. and Tess's and all of these female figures that hurtle themselves into self-destruction. And I think that's what's going on here. I think she, I think she really set herself with two very, um, very difficult challenges. The first is to masculinize what has been told as a feminine story over and over and over again. <laughs> and in the same way that you could argue James and Hardy and these writers have a little, and for that matter, uh, Flaubert have a little bit of distance with their female characters because of the gender divide. She has that right. same distance writing from a, a woman's point of view. Although a woman who enjoyed the company of men as, as friends, 
more than many people did in those generations and who was very comfortable in masculine circumstances sure. and situations in a way that many women of her generation would not have been. She's born during a civil war. And so by the time this novel comes out, she's in her sixties, isn't she? Somewhere. Well, it comes out when she's, she's exactly Newland Archer's age, right? Uh, is it right? As she's writing it, uh, she's 57 years old, but I think her, I think part of that comfort and familiarity has to do with being a writer, being recognized as an artist, but also she had at least two relationships in life that were, you know, outside of marriage. One was, one we know was adulterous, but the other may or may not have been. But both of those men were themselves sort of Jamesian figures who were non-committal, that were right. sort of perpetual bachelors and ended up being great confidants to her. But I think, I think her experience with uh, Teddy Wharton and just the absolute abysmal marriage that they had right really we see a lot of that fear of connection in in archer and the reality is for wharton personally she didn't need a man after no. she was divorced to to coin a phrase popular in the 70s women need a man like a fish needs a bicycle well and the other half of it is it given where society was and this was equally as bad in France where she lived so much as with the United States is legally she'd be surrendering much of her control and much of her ability to affect yeah. her own destiny to man had she remarried. And part of the reason that she left, I mean, I, I teach a class in literary tourism and this week uh, we're studying the Mount, which was the massive estate that she built in 1901 in, in the Berkshires. And uh, it's a beautiful house, you know, it was her, it was her custom designed uh, place where she could work, but she ended up leaving it after a decade because uh, uh, of the need to get out of that right. marriage. And she had to go abroad in a sense to keep her name out of the papers and to keep from, to keep the uh, sort of social repercussions of her leaving Teddy uh, quiet. Right. So that, yeah, there was a time where people didn't want to be in the papers and have everyone talking yeah. about it instead of yeah. actively seeking it out and tweeting it and starting a reality show based on the, the situation. Ultimately, I th think she both likes Newland Archer and pities him. She gives him mm -hmm. many of her own characteristics, you know, the way he orders all the novels and has relationships among these artists and writers reminds us of Wharton. He, He's always reading. He likes to be around other people who read. And he also, even before he has a personal relationship with Ellen, he, he takes up for her early in the novel, like when they're all uh, talking about how she's acting and how she lived with the secretary. He, he finally says, you know, uh, kind of angrily in this group of all these men who are, you know, considering themselves kind of keepers of the flame. Um, women ought to be free as free as we are. And, that of course they laugh at him. They don't even take a front because it's such a to the other men. It's such a preposterous idea. But this is even before he has these romantic feelings for her, and yeah. so I I think she likes him, but also she pities him because he decides to you know not embarrass his mother, not embarrass his sister, and not to throw May overboard. His chivalry, if we can call it that, is part of Ellen's initial attraction to him. Right. 
But at the same time that he is that way, his I find his treatment of May pretty pretty cruel. Yep. And that's the big contradiction in his character. Yes. I mean, some of those early descriptions of her as uh, somebody that he can kind of cultivate to explain things to. One of the, I was listening to an interview with one critic the other day of, of Wharton, and, and she referred to him as sort of uh, grooming her to be mansplained, which I thought was a, a great way of saying it. But I, I think as men, we probably should look at Archer and say, you know, I've, I've probably been guilty of that myself. The attraction to the woman who's has had some sexual knowledge and is, and uh, it's, it creates a dependency on men that I think is marvelously displayed uh, in the Scorsese movie. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis just especially in those latter scenes, exudes a, a real um, vulnerability right. that I think maybe for us as contemporary readers doesn't necessarily come off the page super well with, with Archer. But at the same time, he's not quite as, as uh, liberal or as, as progressive as he likes to give himself no. credit for. And I think that's the great character contradiction in these types of characters. I just got to say the ending of this book is one of the all time great heartbreaking, yes. crushing, rip it out of your chest yep. moments. And it's so perfect. Right. It's almost disappointing in ways. I find myself very emotionally affected by it, actually. But it's almost it's almost disappointing to discover that as she was drafting the novel or outlining it, the warden toyed with the idea of having. Ellen and Archer run away only to discover that they were bored in marriage. <laughs> the old Flaubertian right. Flaubert line that marriage is uh, that adultery is as banal as marriage comes true for them. And so she was, she had kind of alternative endings there. The other ending that she considered was that may and Archer get married, but then he and Ellen do consummate their affair and only to discover that, you know, again, it, it, it just wasn't was. So it's one of those great mystery passions of life. What, what could, could have happened? Been. Well, that's what makes you nostalgic. Yeah. That's where the true nostalgia is, not for mm-hmm. the age of innocence, but for that time in his life where he, you know, the two roads diverged and he took the one that was completely traveled right. by. What's interesting, too, you're talking about him wanting to groom May for, for mansplaining. That, that is while he's still operating as a product of his environment. In every way, right. he is an exemplary member of what everyone wants a man in that society to be. And he's better than most of his peers because he isn't actively seeking out affairs and plotting them out. And he yeah. had had one earlier, we should note, with an older woman and mm-hmm. married, married woman. woman. And everyone feels sorry for him while they judge her. So the double standard yeah. is, is one of the primary focuses throughout the novel. And that's where we first see it. And May and his mother and his sister all look down on that married woman and not on Archer for being on him for being yeah. part of it. And so what's interesting is, of course, why would Ellen, who's so unlike May, attract him in the first place? And it's because he can't groom her. He can't mm-hmm. you know, bring her into his understanding thing. She is every bit as sophisticated, knowledgeable 
about the world and in some ways far more so when it comes to the depravity of whatever kind it was she was subjected to with her, her husband. She's kind of described at, at, at least one point as sort of bohemian. Right. Uh, she's very Europeanized. She has darker skin. That's always an index in this era of novels. You know, skin tone is a great... Right. You haven't sat inside protecting yourself. Yeah. Great signifier to virtue, yep. for better yep. or worse. I think that, uh, you know, again, the, one of the great mysteries of the novel is exactly, you know, what is going on with Ellen I think that, you know, she ha- she has given one of the best lines in the novel, uh, to love you, I have to right. let you go. And it's sort of implied that she's been down this road before, maybe with uh, the, the secretary. And she's sort of wise to the fact that this grand passion notion of marriage or of love it doesn't exist. Mm. I think... You're talking about the alternate endings. I tell my students how some critics wanted to decry the end of the invention of Suckerberry Finn by saying Jim should have died. And my response <laughs> to that novel is always, well, it would be a great tragic novel in that case, but after you've set the whole thing up as comedic to have that twist at the end, means we'd have a lot of respect for the novel, but it wouldn't be taught in all these anthologies for the last hundred years. Yeah. I think the same is true for The Age of Innocence. I think it is the fact that ultimately he had a chance at this consuming love and he turned it down and he will never know if it would have become, like you said, just as banal as anything else or meant something more to him. Uh, And it is important in that ultimate chapter that she talks about how much he becomes someone who throws himself into doing good work for the community, for all the schools, for people, Mm -hmm. for the poor, for the hospitals, and if he's basically, if he's not going to find sublime happiness in marriage, he'll find it as a father and as a person who gives back to the world around him. Right. Which again is like Wharton, right? Yeah, yeah. And and it's interesting in that chapter that she gives him a very brief and unsuccessful right. political uh, career under the tutelage yes. of Teddy Roosevelt, who you know uh, uh, was himself from one of the great 400. But I think that again is meant to say that these public men, that, that, their, that their duties are more uh, in their anonymity and their uh, adherence to the ideas of civic virtue. To me, again, one of the resonant lines is right there at the end where he, they are in Paris. He's in Paris with his son. May has died. It's been set up for him to have this possible reunion with Ellen. He's only right. 57 years old. He could have another relationship in life, but he chooses right. not to go upstairs and see her. And his son, Dallas, sort of teases him and says, what am I supposed to tell her that you're too old fashioned to take elevators and to take advantage right. of these modern ideals? And Newton says, just tell her I'm old fashioned. Yeah. And that's a great, that's a great expression of his chivalry. Again, it's like, you know, I made the choice. I'm not going to dishonor right. May in her death. Or, or dishonor Ellen because she's, he forced her to have this life without him. And we don't really know how fulfilling yeah. her life has been. Exactly. There's also the sense that he just doesn't want to go back. He doesn't want to you know, see her after 
30 years because right. that's the past. She's his Daisy Buchanan. He's got her frozen in this chrysalis mm-hmm. or, or this kind of crystallized right. perfect moment in his mind of how lovely he found her and how wonderful she was. And when reality meets the illusion, you know, Gatsby's one of his senses, he can't see the reality for the illusion. And, and Newland seems to be a little wiser regarding knowing that those two don't necessarily comport with each other. And, he, you know, he kind of had right. his chance and he blew it. Well, he, he didn't, he didn't. I mean, I think that again, the, uh, the you know, it, it's a marvelous question. And I guess I find myself sort of thinking about, you know, when you read these kinds of novels, you're always weighing them against your own personal experience. And, you know, you ask yourself, do these grand, passionate, companion, whatever he was looking for in this adventure, uh, this possible romance, this intensity of love that he feels like he feels for Ellen, is that really real? Right. I mean, does that exist? The, there's a gr- the great scene where he says, I want to run away to a world where, you know, people can just be together if they want to be together, where nobody has to be a mistress. She says, where would that world be? <laughs> exactly. Where is that country? Exactly. And she, and she makes a great point that people run away and they end up in like Buenos Aires uh, in, in, <laughs> in dingier countries that just feel promiscuous. Right. And cheaper, cheaper hotels. They, yeah. Well, you know, you, you talked about one of the literary progenitors of this novel, Anna Karenina, and there you have two couples. You have the couple where it is all based on the passion of the moment, and it does, the flame does burn itself out, and mm-hmm. it does become banal. And then you have the, the couple who build their house on sturdier soil and grow together, and it becomes about building a life together, building a family together, building a future together. And so you see how it, it can go that way and it can go the other way. And yeah. maybe, you know, the seed is there and it all depends what you do with it one way or the other. Well, and one of the ironies here, I mean, we are given a couple in this novel, the Vanderludens, that are sort of presented as, you know, the ultimate social arbiters because they do have this marriage. Uh, but one of the ironers is that Julius Buford, after his wife, who he's cheated on dies, apparently marries his mistress, right. uh, legitimates their one point is referred to as a bastard child who ends up marrying Dallas at the end of right. the novel. That's a, that's a sure sign that things have changed. And he and his mistress apparently enjoy a companionate relationship after all the, after all yeah. the controversy uh, and after his bankruptcy. Well, and, and he's the, he is the kind of combination of a Daisy Miller character, new, you know, nouveau riche, no one respects him because it's new money. And at the same time, he's unflappable when they judge him and look down on him and just doesn't really seem to care, you know, in a way that Newland does care. Yeah, I hate saying Buford is almost Trumpian, but he's almost <laughs> Trumpian yeah. in, his, in his sort of Teflon resilience. It just, it just flows off of him. Yeah. So when it's all said and done, Kirk, do you see this as a great American novel? 
clearly it is American. This is an interesting case because I was looking around and I came up with a, I found a column that was published in numerous magazines in early 1921 that asks just this question about Main Street and the Age of Innocence. Uh, And it is, so let me just read the first paragraph and then I'll read what this guy says about, uh, about Wharton. In the publication of Sinclair Lewis's Main Street and Mrs. Wharton's The Age of Innocence, both of which appeared at approximately the same time, were furnished with two excellent excellent reasons why it's still too early in our national development to expect the appearance of the great American novel. (laughs) The Age of Innocence has been hailed as Mrs. Wharton's greatest achievement, and yet... Basically, his argument is that uh, in dealing with this uh, particular stratosphere, this particular cross-section, that it is too narrow, that Ah. it's not representative of the American experience. Interestingly enough, we've always been using Lawrence Buell's book about the great American novel. He says virtually nothing about the age of innocence in that book. Uh, and focuses instead on the custom of the country, which is really more about upward mobility right. and, and the crassness of that. So I do think people might, of all the books we've done so far, this might be the one that people take the most exception to, are most resistant to calling it a great American novel. I, I would put it in that category, though. I think it is. I would, too. And, you know, a writer not too many years ago in the New Yorker, who is one of these people who is a chronicler of the middle class. And uh, Jonathan Franzen wrote an essay and it was, it's a very odd essay mm-hmm. and uh, I can't remember the title of it off the top of my head, but he primarily comes down on the fact that we should read Edith Orton, even though she isn't particularly good looking <laughs> and that we shouldn't judge her based on that. And yeah. of course, the great response is who's judging any writer by how they look. Uh, that was a you, huge controversy. It was about yeah, 10 you, years ago. Yeah. What are you talking about? Um, uh, I, I do think the novel provokes prejudices about women's writing that we need to, that we need to get over pretty quickly. Right. You know, when I, when we were putting together our Ralph Ellison episode, I came across a piece of video where he was talking about the novel of manners. And he basically said it's too restricted of, a, mm. of an area to really capture the American experience. Uh, I, th- I think, again, we need to get past that idea that if there's not some great adventure, if there's not uh, wild travel sure. down the Mississippi, that it's not great. I think this is a great American novel, again, because. It asks, what are what is the ob, what obligations do the does the individual have to the society around him? And it talks about this notion of if if we lose sight of what the so-called American dream is supposed to be, if it's simply supposed to be about cashing in and making money and being prominent in society, you know, guess what? There's never been any guarantee that that's actually going to buy you happiness. Yeah. That's going to provide you meaning in life. And this one shows you very clearly that you can be born in the 
supreme upper crust. You can play by all the rules and still have a, a life where you feel disenfranchised and cast adrift. Right. And it doesn't mean anything. I believe in terms of scope and depth, it, it is following in that tradition of Henry James dealing with a narrow band in terms of social class. But I think because of, you know, 50% of the world is, is female, slightly more than that. Yes. And I think it has great scope because of the way it handles the, the double standard question and the way Ellen is treated so differently than Beaufort or Newland are treated for their indiscretions um, and Beaufort's repeated indiscretions. And so to me, it definitely has that. And I think those themes of just the way that certain people in America are trying to recreate European aristocracy and the danger in that and not giving into the American experiment, but rejecting it in favor of the old way of doing things. I think that's in here too. And I think that makes it important. And here's the, the big question, or one of the two big questions, does it have a serious aesthetic value? Is it a work of art? Uh, I would say yes, because the, now this is a realist work. Uh, so we don't have the levels of experimentation that we have right. in, in the kinds of novels that we tend to, uh, you know, we celebrated Melville for sort of the frenzy of inspiration and we celebrated Ellison for the, the breadth of his bringing in different styles, including folklore. But the real realism is easy to overlook the importance of. I, and I think because it sort of gets stereotyped as being a little too studied, a little too clinical, it's, it's easy to overlook how difficult it is. Right. I think we have to look at the effect of free and direct discourse on us as readers, the ambiguity that it creates in a text and the, and the sort of holes of mystery that we step into. We, we never really know for certain a lot about these characters. Right. And that's what makes it kind of intriguing to come back to. Well, and just, just a sentence to sentence crafting, mm -hmm. which is, I think, far, you know, many students are done a disservice by having Ethan Frome thrust upon them. Yeah. I, I would say that's not in her top novels. And it really is because of the importance of her name, I guess, that it's retained its place yeah. in the middle school, high school canon. Um, whereas this novel, I think she's, She's firing on all cylinders. It's, it's really delivering. And, and just the way that it's eventually unveiled how May has been playing the long game, mm -hmm. um, that final chapter and final scene, which are so haunting. And thank God she didn't go with any of those other versions yeah. that she played with. Uh, I, I think it's, a, it's an artistic accomplishment, yeah. a significant one. And, you know, Kirk, from just a simply visceral reaction, this novel hits me far more than James's novels do, even when they're dealing with the same things, because with his, there's always so many layers of the linguistic aesthetic of the complexity of the prose that there is always a coldness and a distance to those. And to me, the way she's changed her prose in this novel diminishes that distance and you do feel it. It's a less satirical novel than the house of mirth is the custom of the uh, country. I, I think, there is a importance for moving the reader emotionally. We tend to discount, we often dismiss that emotional reaction as sort of sentimentalism. Even, even a hard-boiled novel like The Sun Also Rises so, you know, got dissed in its day for, for the quote-unquote sentimental ending. But I think it's important that we're able to uh, move ourselves emotionally 
in a work of art. I agree. In terms of durability, again, I think we need to emphasize that this novel, you know, it, it has had a, uh, it, it, again, it's by far the most popular and most adapted of her works. So I would say that, you know, one way to think of the enduring popularity is it invokes in us the same sort of feelings that we might have about Willa Cather's My Antonia in, in right. that sense of, of nostalgia. And nostalgia is a very powerful American emotion. It's sewn into the idea of America from the beginning with William Bradford, with the idea that, you know, it's part of the American Jeremiah. We have failed and we can only look back to to what we should be doing. That was four years after the planet landing or so he's writing that. Exactly. So... We are agreed, and this is a great American novel, and if the detractors want to um, thumb wrestle us for it, they can make their long pilgrimages to wherever we are living at the time and thumb wrestle us. Now, usually in our on this podcast, we will end with either cannon fodder, and that's what we've done for the first few episodes of a book that's not been given sufficient attention we think should be part of the canon or at least widely regarded and read and sometimes canon buster where a book is at the top tier of the canon and we're not saying don't read it we're not saying don't publish it we're saying let's not really think of it in our top 30 40 50 most significant american novels Um, these are the ones we would bust to a lower rank in favor of books like say the age of innocence. So Kirk, what is, what are we busting lower into the canon this time? What's our canon buster? The obvious one to ask ourselves is main street and whether Sinclair Lewis uh, deserves that particular work deserves to be given the title, great American novel. I, I think that because of the controversy over the Pulitzer, which Wharton was extremely embarrassed by, uh, when it leaked out, uh, members of the committee leaked it to the press that they had given the Pulitzer to the Age of Innocence because one particular conservative critic thought Main Street was un-American. I, I will say this. I don't think Main Street is a great American novel. Uh, I think it has a certain vogue, but I don't think the durability is there. I don't think so, especially in his style. And yeah. I also think thematically, he's pretty one note. Yeah. So Babbitt, Aerosmith, um, which I always want to call Aero Shirt, <laughs> uh, um, Aerosmith, and, uh, and not to be confused with right. the band, spelled Aero spelled differently. And uh, and Babbitt are all, um, they all are kind of about the same thing. So he's going back to that well pretty yeah. often. And I think uh, now of all of those that you mentioned, I think Babbitt is the one that makes the best case for maybe being a great American novel because uh, you do feel sympathy for George F. Babbitt, uh, right. you know, in the second half of that novel, because he's beginning to realize how empty his life is as well. But I do think that with Lewis, there's a, a, sati- a type of satire that is maybe too cartoonish that he never overcame. Uh, some, some people might argue that it can't happen here, which is his 
you know, warning against the rise of fascism in America Nazism, has, right. has new relevance after what we were gone through the last five years, uh, that maybe that should be a contender. But I just don't think he has the craft or honestly the emotional nuance that Wharton, right. that Wharton has. It's, characters are kind of two-dimensional. The dialogue is often very flat and expositional in a lot of his writing. Uh, we give him credit for that trio of the American scene novels that I just mentioned, um, partly because he does a good got job capturing the kind of American love of industry and commerce and the kind of fetishistic worshiping of business and capital and money that arose uh, in the years just before and really just after World War One, and you could argue that is a, an American issue that carries through the 50s and the early 60s. And so we give him a lot of credit for being a good observer, but I don't think being a good observer alone makes for a great writer. It makes you a good journalist. Yeah. I, that's my problem with Tom Wolfe's book, Bonfire to Vanities. The fact that he pokes us in a lot of sacred cows doesn't necessarily make it a profound read. And I think maybe Tom Wolfe is a great analogy to the way we look at Sinclair Lewis. I feel for the guy because I'm not sure there's any American writer who's fallen out of the canon more than he has. This is the first guy right. to win the Nobel Prize. And he's very rarely, I think, taught or uh, analyzed much as much as he was at one point. But I do think you're right that I, I just get the feeling like he never felt any empathy for his characters. And that possibly is the one of the defining characteristics of whether a book's going to last or not is that the writer has to feel empathy for us to feel empathy. Yeah. And if there's simply a subject of an essay in fictive prose form, it's not working as a novel. Right. So uh, Kirk, what is the next novel we're doing? The next novel, we are going to take on what is the absolute, I think, uh, idea of somebody's sense of greatness when it comes to the density of experimentation or the difficulty of reading, shall we say. We're going to do Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. Truly one of the most cited is great and least read yeah. books because of a lot of people can be scared of, of Faulkner, but if I think if you come along with this, we'll be able to carry you through it. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in that book. And the question we'll ask each other is how many times did we have to try to read it before we actually were able to read it? And maybe that is an unanswerable question for both of us, uh, you know, as we as we get ready for it. Well, we thank you all for listening to the Great American Novel Podcast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're so inclined, please leave a favorable review. It really helps us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you may enjoy others, such as Master the Forty with Kirk and Robert Trogdon, focusing on the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Reading McCarthy with me and various guests about the works of Cormac McCarthy. You can also email us at greatamericannovelpodcast at gmail.com. We sure do appreciate your listening. <laughs>